0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
1: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking
0: requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and member FDIC. What kind of a
1: show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting.
0: I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Time is the thing uh-huh. time is is the essential piece of uh interpretation you cannot start without me see i start the clock you know, my left hand the end of the year is nigh josh sounds ominous we're talking about the best performances of 2022 this week and no we cannot start without Kate blanchett's lydia tar
1: without a doubt one of the standout performances of the year but is it the best our favorite lead and supporting performances, and much, much more ahead on Film Spotting.
0: Welcome to Film Spotting. The timing of Sight and Sound Publishing, its once a decade top 100 films of all timeless, meant that we'd already recorded our last show when it dropped. And now, Josh, here we are a week later, and everyone's already done talking about it. Are you ready to reignite the discourse? Really? You think it, it's all wrapped up, huh? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not done. There's I'm, some residual. I'm still, I'm still digging in, looking at others' lists. There's a lot to get to yet, I think. We do have some thoughts on the new list, which saw a significant turnover in titles, including in that number one slot. But we're going to save those thoughts for just a little bit later in the show. Also later in the show. We've got some thoughts on a couple of this weekend's big releases. Guillermo del Toro's stop-motion adaptation of Pinocchio is coming out in limited release and playing exclusively on Netflix. Also, Sam Mendes' Empire of Light is out, the director's love letter to the power of movies and movie theaters. So many love letters. Radio listeners, you're hearing an edited version of this show. As always, you can hear the full podcast edition of the show at filmspotting.net or wherever you listen to podcasts. That's where you can get all of our insights and rambling. Before we get to our favorite performances of the year, we did want to give a quick thank you to everyone who has taken the time to help us spread the word about the show, Josh.
1: Yeah, the last couple of weeks we have been asking folks to tell a friend, a family member, maybe a colleague about film spotting. You can always post on social media about the show, or even better, take a minute to rate or review us on whatever podcast platform you use. Apple Podcasts and now Spotify as well. I think this is relatively new on Spotify, new to me at Mm -hmm. least. Both make rating the show or leaving a review pretty easy to do. Thanks a bunch to those who have already done this. They've left some very kind reviews over the past week. This would include Ja Adande, White 9266 Josh Newby, Mark Chicago, Illinois, Sci-Fi Fan in East Islip, Jim and Beth Page, Nick Names Taken, American Idiot, and last but certainly not least, (laughs) Captain Fartman. Thanks, Captain. <laughs> fartman.
0: I like that you went Fartman instead of Fartman and made yeah. it sound like a superhero. Right. And, and, you know, a little classier, I like to think. A little classier. And we're nothing if not classy here on spotting. Our thanks to the Captain and everyone who submitted a rating and review. It truly does help introduce the show to new listeners. Maybe... Pumps up that Apple or Spotify algorithm a little bit. We saw about a sixty place jump. Our producer Sam noticed in the iTunes top two hundred TV and film rankings. Josh and we had nine or ten brand new reviews just in the past seven days. So, have to attribute that jump not only to Mr. Spielberg and perhaps interest around our review of the Fablemans, but also the kind words of our listeners. So, thank you for that. Thanks for all of your support of the show. And now let's get on with the show. All
1: right. Important business to attend to, Adam. As the deadline approaches to send in our nominations for the Chicago Film Critics Association Awards, we're going to help each other out. Sort out these ballots that we're in the midst of and possibly flummoxed
0: by. Yes, definitely flummoxed by. I think we both probably have some sure things that probably aren't going to change much, even though we still have some time to submit these ballots which means, fortunately, we have some time to continue watching things. But I feel like performances, for the most part, are pretty well set, especially at the top of some categories for me. But the bottom three, four, five sometimes can get a little messy.
1: Yeah, that's pretty much where I'm at. I have, for each of these acting categories, locks, usually Mm -hmm. three or so locks, And then I've got a bunch of names on the bubble. So I want to hear who you've got. Maybe you can swing me towards one name or another or push me away from certain performances. Maybe that'll happen too. But yeah, we'll come out of this with a set five in each category. I like to think that we feel good about voting for.
0: Yeah, definitely give each other something to chew on. We used to do this in private. We didn't really consult each other when we were forming our ballots. The picks used to come out over the course of some of these end-of-year episodes. But I like this approach. Hopefully, listeners do, too, where we move it up a little bit and we admit that things are in flux, that we are flexible, that we have some more work to do thinking about these lists, and we're going to work through it all here together. So we're going to start with... Best Supporting Actor, one of the easier categories for me, Josh, just in terms of narrowing it down to a solid five. What about you?
1: Yeah, probably because I actually have four locks here rather than three. So really space just for one more name to move in. And at this point, I'm definitely sold on Ki Hui Kwan from Everything Everywhere all at once. Honestly, I think he should be considered for lead, but it looks Mm -hmm. like most campaigning has him in the supporting category. So he's definitely, if he was a lock for a lead, he's absolutely a lock for me here in supporting. Another early performance in terms of the calendar year, going all the way back to Koganada's After Yang, Justin H. Min as the techno-sapien, I think that's the term they use in the movie. Just incredible in a very difficult role. I think, you know, I know he's not a robot, but these robot performances we get over the years are the ones that I think it can be difficult to ascertain how effective they are beyond just separating themselves from the quote-unquote humans. It's, it's not just ticks that they need to bring to it, but for it to be a fully realized performance, they need to do more. And I think Justin H. Min is doing that in After Yang. Pedro Pascal, the funniest thing in the Nick Cage meta-movie, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, and funny with Cage. It was their dynamic, I think, that really made that movie for me. All right. All right. I get it. You are making this up? What is this, like a a little um, Stanislavski improv thing? Well, you can stop.
0: Stanislavski, is he part of the resistance? Stop!
1: I am your guest! Gabriella ripped the bedspread off me this morning! Now you're sending me on like a wild... Goose, James! I'm sorry, but you can't quit acting, you can't! That's none of your business. Whether you like it or not, you have a gift.
0: And that gift brings light and joy to an increasingly dark and broken world. And to turn your back on that gift is to turn your back on the en- entire human race.
1: The human race. My fourth lock here, Michael Ward. The movie theater employee who befriends Olivia Coleman's manager in Empire of Light. That's who Michael Ward plays. I'll just say that for now because there will be more on him in our bonus show we're going to do for some of the other ballot categories for film spotting family members. I want to talk about him a little bit
0: more there, and he'll probably come up when we review Empire of Light. A very good top five. One of those I haven't seen, but let's start with the two that we have in common. I've also got. Justin H. Min from after Yang. He's in my number four slot at the moment. I agree with your perspective on that performance. He's a synthetic human. He could be considered a bit of a robot. He's full of all this knowledge and information and he's there to serve a function. So there is a precision to him, but man, does he bring a soulfulness that allows you to understand the journey that Colin Farrell's character goes on as he, actually starts to pay attention to him and try to process who this being really was all in retrospect, which also adds that heartbreaking or tragic element to the story. So I agree a newcomer who is very good in that Koganata film and Kihi Kwan. I've got it number two right now. Great comeback story, first of all, but beyond that, a great performance like that film. Chaotic, a little wacky. It's got a real sense of humor. He's got a real sense of humor that he brings to his character. But then there's that emotional depth as well that you cannot overlook. So we agree there. Pedro Pascal is a blind spot for me. I still have not caught up with that Nick Cage movie. The three others on my list right now that you didn't mention, and I think two of these are currently still blind spots for you. At number five, I have Mehdi Bajistani. ...from the film Holy Spider. This came out at the end of October in some theaters. The director is Ali Abbasi, and it's about a journalist, a female journalist, who goes into the streets of Mashhad, the Iranian holy city, to investigate the serial killings of sex workers. It's all these women who are being killed, and the killer, although unknown and a bit elusive is nevertheless someone who is calling the newspaper and making his intentions known. He wants the world to know why he's doing this and that he's going to continue to do it. He sees himself on a real mission. And it's easy to look at characters who play serial killers in movies as these fascinating, dramatic characters. And sometimes actors give very good performances really leaning into that juiciness and kind of the salaciousness and they want to be Hannibal Lecter type figures who terrify you a little bit. And what's so terrifying about Bajistani is how. Unterrifying he is. And what I mean is there's no outward display of the terror he's trying to inflict on these women. It's a case, Josh, where he acts so serene and placid about everything he's doing. And that's the result of complete entitlement. When you live in a society that allows you as a man to act on your religious fervor and punish those you perceive to be sinners, then you can just kind of go about your day and go about your work. And that's what actually, for me, makes that character so scary. I wonder if this one's on the bubble for you, Josh. Long been a defender of this actor, more so than me even. At least going back a ways, but I know we both saw this movie and we both saw this actor, Brad Pitt, Mm. in Damien Chazelle's Babylon. I've got him at number three right now. I really like this performance. I don't know who the star of Babylon is supposed to be. It's a sprawling ensemble piece, and you can make the case that it's Diego Calva's character or it's Margot Robbie's character or they're all supposed to be equals with Pitt. The character that I think Chazelle exhibits the most empathy for and gives actually the most to do. Robbie's performance might be showier, and I think she's good as well. But Pitt's performance is the one that's most grounded and the one I think we're supposed to really care about the most. At least that's the experience I had with it, and I think it's because of Pitt's performance. (sighs) Should we have the Babylon conversation now? We I don't should. think, I think we shouldn't. <laughs> and and
1: honestly, that's good because I'm still formulating my thoughts about it, which I'll just say are conflicted. I'm also conflicted about Pitt. Hmm. I think there are absolutely great scenes with him and you see why Chazelle thought of him and why he wanted to play this part as this yeah. somewhat aging, iconic, classic Hollywood star. star. I also think he has some scenes that are among the worst that I've seen pit in and actually make me see what you saw earlier in his Hmm. career. And I'll just say this, they come in the sequences where, so part of the narrative is that his character has to look bad on screen. In other words, has to perform in a way Mm -hmm. that the audience registers as bad acting. And there are moments around that time frame in the film where it seeps into his performance where he's not supposed to be bad acting. There's a specific scene I can think of. Maybe it'll come up later if we ever get into this that I do think it, it was so off and tonally false to me that it really took away from some of those other good moments. So, so yeah, there's a lot going on in, in Babylon. Pitt, because of that, and just some other questions I have about the movie, uh, he didn't quite rise to the top of the performances of the year for me. You know what we have to do?
0: We have to redefine the form. Map those dreams and print them into history. Look up and say, Eureka, I am not alone. Yeah, that falseness, something I have noted in a lot of older performances from Pitt, often feeling like he's trying way too hard to be a character and to be a character actor. And here, embodying this movie star, I felt as if there was really no one else who could have played this part. Yeah. Honestly, maybe someone like Cruz would have been able to pull this off, but I like Pitt here as that matinee idol I think he does stand in for that figure in a way that really nobody else on screen these days can. There is ease
1: in his best moments in the movie, and then there is intense effort for me Hmm. in
0: in the worst moments. There's There's a big gap in this performance for me. And of course, I didn't hear get that gap, and I really felt like he was right in line with the overall tone and effort of that film. Finally, though, my fifth... Option here at best supporting actor. And right now, my number one is Brian Tyree Henry from Causeway, starring opposite Jennifer Lawrence. Leela Niggebauer is the first time director here coming from the theater. And we've all known for a while that Tyree Henry is just one of those actors who maybe should be cast in everything. He's such a big presence here, and he is a big presence physically, but he's so soft spoken. As well, especially in this role. It's not as if he can't be big or dramatic or orate on screen, but this character is one who has undergone some trauma. He seems to be stifling some of that baggage, and it's coming out through this relationship, this platonic relationship with Lawrence's character, but he's also acting as this. Guide for her, this companion that's allowing her to work through her trauma, and they're such a good pair that that's still the standout for me.
1: So, uh, probably just a carburetor. Uh, if it is, I can just get that part on eBay. It ain't that hard to find. It may take a while to get here. But, hurry.
0: I don't know how long I'll be here. How
1: much is it going to cost? Maybe about a refitting, both, plus labor. Maybe more if we get in there and find need some more work. I don't know if I want to fix it. It's not, it's not even mine. It's... Oh, no, not that. <laughs> I mean, that's,
0: that's a nice truck.
1: Another one I need to see. And, and so hopefully we'll both come away, you know, between recording and actually turning in our first round nomination ballots, we have a couple of days. So hopefully we'll both come away with a little bit of homework we can do
0: in that time because, yeah, I still need to catch Causeway. Before we move on to supporting actress, any other names, you're at least thinking about or were in the mix in terms of supporting actor?
1: Yeah, here's my bubble name. So feel free to push me one way or the other. This one, this first one I owe to you because though I loved the performance on the screen and at the time, I I didn't even mention it when we reviewed it or I think when I wrote about Nanny as well, but Cinqua Walls, who has a small supporting part as a doorman in the building where the main character works as a nanny and they develop a friendship and eventually a romance, his scenes are among the best in the film. And he's just, it's just one of those performances where he, he shows up once and you think that could be his only scene, possibly, because of the part, but you want to see him again. And then every time you do, you know, oh, this is going to be a good scene because he's here. And so I think it does deserve consideration. Andre Brower as one of the editors in She Said, just a calm, authoritative presence in that movie that's uh, kind of roots what needs to be done and supports his reporters. Chris Pine... I think it's really good and don't worry darling a film that I am higher on than most this year and then we talked about this performance Adam we both highlighted it among the ensemble of Glass Onion it's Edward Norton so one of those four very likely unless something new that I see in the next few days pops up is going to get that fifth spot for me and any one of them you want to you
0: want to lobby for Yeah, there'd be a clear winner among those honorable mentions for me, and it would be Edward Norton. And this is a good reminder why we do this process here on the show and work these lists out together. Even though I love Norton's performance, somehow when I started whittling down my list, I completely overlooked him. Brower is one who I would include more in a category that should be recognized, but there isn't a category for it. And it's just not quite supporting actor worthy in terms of the meat of the performance. It's a scene stealer. I think Brower does steal some of those scenes. he's That's in, fair. Even though he's really subtle. Usually we think of scene stealers as ones who are doing something really big and with a lot of flair. He is definitely not some others for me. I did want to note not only Cinqua Walls from Nanny, but Alessandra Nivola was, I think, the funniest part for me of the movie Amsterdam, Mm. the David O. Russell box office failure. I thought every time he opened his mouth, he was hilarious. And David Lynch, David Lynch at the end of The Fablemans, the Steven Spielberg film, is so good. But again, not really up to the level of a supporting performance for me. Beyond Norton, Michael Ward from your list, from Empire of Light, is one I've got just on the bubble. I did like Paul Dano a lot in The Fablements, and in Women Talking, Ben Wishaw. I'll give the worst adjective you can give as a critic. I'll say he gives a really interesting performance, and the more I sit with it, the more I do appreciate it. Yeah, we have to have a woman talking talk. Unfortunately. As well, at some (laughs) point. We are going to have to talk about that film, one of my most anticipated, one of your most anticipated of the year lots of names there. And speaking of lots of names, let's get on to supporting actress where there's an abundance. There were way more options here for me, way more on the bubble than there were with supporting actor. How did you start to approach this one? Right now I have
1: three locks, but yeah, to your point, I have a bunch on the bubble and you know, I could see things shifting around where enough of these bump out one of these locks. But for now, I am going with Ashleen Franchosi from God's Creatures. This is the Anna Rose Homer and Celia Davis film that, man, I think a lot of people have slept on. I don't know how big of a release it got. I know, obviously, with Anna Rose Homer and The Fits being a golden brick winner, whatever her follow-up was going to be was going to be higher on our radar than others. But this is a really solid film with some great performances. And the one that stood out to me was Ashleen Franchosi. I've also got Hong Chao on the list. She plays the friend and unofficial nurse to Brendan Fraser's English teacher who is struggling with obesity in The Whale. And it's a very complicated role. This is someone who is... She has to capture the anguish of trying to help someone who wants some of what you have to offer, but is rejecting other parts of it. And I just think they're... That's a really complicated movie. We also have not had a chance to talk about in depth for sure. We probably both agree the performances are very solid in it. And that includes Hong Chao for me. The other standout for me, a comedic performance, Rachel Sennett in bodies, 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 the Shiva baby star who we both loved in that movie just walks away with this black comedy ensemble thriller. She brings such a, a delightfully dippy comic timing to every single line reading. She's fantastic at it. And I do like to honor comedic performances whenever I get the chance. So those are my three locks right now. Here's who's on the bubble. Lee Ji-eun in Hirokazu Koreeda's Broker, which I just watched a couple days ago. Now Lee Ji-eun is, I found this out after watching it, a K-pop star who has also acted for the past, I think, 10 or more years, mostly in TV series in Korea. Here, she has incredible pathos without being saccharine. And I think Corrieta's, you know, mileage varies on how his films register there. But here, she has pathos without being saccharine as this young mother who's looking to give up her infant. Again, that is in Broker. So very impressed by that performance. Another one I've just watched the last couple of days. The actor is Guslaji Malanga, playing the mother on trial for killing her infant daughter, which... We know right at the very beginning in Alice Dieppe's courtroom drama, Saint Omer. There are so many sequences in this movie of Malanga just holding the camera. There are no cuts. And this is in the courtroom. She's very still. She's very stoic. She hardly moves on the stand. But at the same time, she gives this mother a thrumming emotion underneath. And one of those emotions is bewilderment by her own actions. She doesn't deny the crime. She confesses it. And all of this is playing up there in a a reserved but completely accessible performance by Malanga. I think Angela Bassett deserves consideration in Black Panther Wakanda Forever. We were both disappointed by that film, Adam. And one of the pleasant surprises for me, though, was how big Bassett's role was in it, especially compared to the first movie. And I think she taps into more than anyone else that undercurrent of grief and sorrow that is one of the stronger elements in Wakanda Forever. She also gets a killer scene where I think it's the United Nations or some equivalent. She walks in and just owns the room Mm -hmm. and gets to be full Angela Bassett. So I'm considering um, you know recognizing her for that. And then real quickly, three more here. Jennifer Ely in She Said as one of the witnesses who makes the very difficult decision to share her testimony. Carrie Condon in the Banshees of Inna Sharon. We touched on her when we talked about that film, but mostly focused on Colin Farrell. She is so great as his character's sister. And then back to the whale here. Sadie Sink, who most people probably know from Stranger Things, plays the Brendan Fraser character's teen daughter. Very... Angry, Estrange. estranged, estranged yeah. teen daughter, and I think is you know holds her own against what what I've already described as a, a very strong cast. So she's probably on the outside looking in of those bubble picks, but that's what the picture looks like for me right
0: now. We definitely do not share three of those choices because I have yet to see Bodies, 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 Broker, or Saint Omer. Those last two, especially, I'd like to see all three. Those last two, especially, though, are on my watch list here ahead of ballot submission. In terms of some of the names where we do overlap, I've actually got Hong Chow as one of my locks from The Whale and right now in the top spot. Another one of those characters, I've said this a few times over the past several weeks, talking about a character like Brian Tyree Henry's in Causeway, talking about Cinqua Walls in Nanny. Characters who you are grateful to see whenever they show up on screen and whenever she shows up at Charlie's house, you understand the empathy that she brings, but also the real anger. There's a fierceness to her. It's not anger so much that she is mad at him. She's just so frustrated because she loves him and she wants to take care of him so badly and wants him to live. And that. Pain is something that Chow really navigates acutely, but then also still manages to bring some lightness and vulnerability to subject matter that's very intense. Carrie Condon, I think, is one of the standouts of the year for sure. She's in my number two slot here for supporting actress from The Banshees of Inna Sharon. And my number three is a performance that some, I think, have argued, I certainly said it, when I talked about the movie on the show, I said that this is really more of a lead performance, even though the studio is not at all putting it up for your consideration that way. The movie's The Woman King. And the reason why they're putting Tusu and Beto as a secondary or supporting option is because Viola Davis is the star of that film. But when you watch The Woman King, her character, I believe, really is the one driving the narrative forward yeah. and is the even better performance. Yes, even better than Viola Davis. So Tuso and Bedu is my number three lock, Josh. I am a general. I have earned it. You have earned nothing. I should put you out. Mm. I have watched soldiers die because they did not have discipline. Their
1: easy life did not prepare them for... I did not have an easy life. life! ...as an au-gogier.
0: I did not have an easy life. He's... I, I want to be with the others. I want to fight for my king. Your tears mean nothing. The tough part for me are these last two slots, because not only am I strongly considering someone you mentioned, Aisling Franchosi from God's Creatures, and also Angela Bassett from Black Panther Wakanda Forever, but what about the voice work of Isabella Rossellini? and Marcel the shell with shoes on. I know. I I should probably have her on my bubble picks, and I don't have a good reason except for maybe what I'll get to when we get to Best Actress. Okay. Michelle Williams for me from The Fablemans. I had high praise for that performance last week during our review. But you also have to consider the two Tar supporting performances, Nina Haas, Naomi Merlon. I really like Zoe Kravitz in The Batman. And it sounds like... Based on the tail end of our review of Glass Onion, a performance that I think is a lot more worthy of consideration than you do, Janelle Monet.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm still wrestling with that one as well. It has to work on a number of levels for reasons we won't get into. And I, I guess I'll just say maybe similar to the Brad Pitt performance. I'm not sure it
0: works on all of them quite as well for me. I do have a few scene stealers here. Again, these are the only two categories where I have them. Evan Rachel Wood in Weird, the Al Yankovic story, playing Madonna, just one of the funniest, most committed performances of the year. I really like Joey King in Bullet Train opposite Brad Pitt. And I'm going to mention Women Talking again. I don't know how much more it's going to come up in this show or other shows here at the end of the year. I'll say directly, I'm not a fan of the film. It was a disappointment for me from a filmmaker who I am a huge fan of and as I said earlier, it's a film that I think I had as my number one most anticipated movie of the fall. But not only do I like Ben Wishaw's performance, there's some nice scene-stealing moments from an actress I'm sure I've seen before but wasn't familiar to me. Judith Ivy is one of the older women in this group who is trying to decide whether or not, after they've been blatantly abused by the men in their community whether or not they're going to stay and fight or leave that was one performance for me that stood out even more so than some of the performances that are getting more attention like jesse buckley and claire foy now i've thrown out all these names and i haven't even mentioned the two that right now do actually occupy my four and five slots and i'm kind of surprised they didn't come up on your list josh because you like this movie more than I do. And I recommended it. It wasn't a mixed review, really. I just didn't swoon for it the way a lot of critics did. The movie's everything, everywhere, all at once. And it's those supporting turns by Jamie Lee Curtis and Stephanie Hsu. I need to see this movie again. I don't know that I'm gonna have time to rewatch anything. With so many movies, I still wanna squeeze in before the ballots are due. But as I was forming this list As I went earlier in the year, and this is the oldest movie we've talked about in terms of freshness in my recollection, I had noted both of those performances along with Kihi Kwan as standouts.
1: Yeah, I have watched Everything Everywhere All at Once a second time within probably the last month, just because I knew it was going to be a player at the end of the year here and wanted to know exactly where I stand on it. Still loved it mostly loved all the performances as I did the first time and sort of confirmed how I felt about those two in particular. I think for me, Jamie Lee Curtis, who is a blast and should be highlighted. I think it's one of the better performances of the year. Let me say that. But I Mm -hmm. think it gets a lot of mileage out of, is that really Jamie Lee Curtis (laughs) more than the performance itself, which is fine. That's probably part of the casting, right? But maybe Mm -hmm. why she doesn't rise just as high as some other names for me. Stephanie Hsu, And this was my initial reaction when I first watched it. I loved her in the scenes where the straight drama scenes or the reality scenes, however you want to describe those scenes in the movie, are just the regular family scenes. I think Mm -hmm. she's it's so layered in the types of hurt that daughter feels and yet the connection she wants to maintain to her family. Incredibly good. I Mm -hmm. thought her turn as the villain and i was I was discussing this with my daughter because she watched it the second time with me. and And she actually disagrees with me. But I couldn't quite pinpoint what was lacking there in terms of, I don't know if I wanted her to be scarier or more of a threat. And, of course, I think this is what my daughter said. It's like, well, that's not really the point, right? She's, it, this isn't a superhero movie. Yeah. But there was a gap. I, I'm, I'm, co- I'm running up against this a couple performances I see already. There was a gap for me between the register she's in as the daughter and the register she's in as the villain where um, it didn't quite work quite as well. So, again, not that it's a bad performance, just that's probably why it's not on my list at this
0: point. I get that, but I'm glad your daughter is there to be my surrogate and say what I was exactly going to say, which is that is part of the humor. That's part of the irony of it. It's more of a comedic role. That's effective. Yeah, that it becomes more comedic than anything. We'll get to more best of 2022 performance talk later in the show with our picks for the best lead performances of the year. But- we wanted to spend a few minutes on the results of Sight and Sound's 100 Greatest Films of All Time list, which dropped back on the first of the month. For a little background, for those of you who didn't follow the story as closely as we did, Sight and Sound magazine has published its top 100 list every decade since 1952. That year, 63 critics named Vittorio De Sica's Bicycle Thieves the greatest film of all time, a film that had been released only four years earlier. Ten years later, and then for the next 40 lists, the number one film, Was Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. Over the course of those first 50 years of the poll, they did expand the number of critics to 145. In 2012, it was 856 critics who contributed to the poll, and there was a new number one, Hitchcock's Vertigo displaced Welles' masterpiece. It dropped to number two. Here we are now 10 years later, Josh. They've expanded the list again, Over 1,600 critics from around the world were invited to submit ballots. We were not among them, (laughs) but we shall move on. You got to let that go, Adam. (laughs) I am officially right now letting it go. Good. The 2022 list also saw a shift at the top again. Vertigo now dropped to two. Kane dropped to three. And shooting up the charts from number 51 in the 2012 poll all the way to that number one slot Chantel Ackerman's three hour and 22 minute slow cinema classic from 1975, Jean Dielman. I had a feeling it would be in the top 10. I was hopeful it would be in the top 10. I really didn't think it would jump up all the way to number one. I think I was similar. Top 10 seemed possible for
1: it i did expect a lot of shake-up uh i thought you know just knowing they had expanded the the list of critics who were invited had mm-hmm. to had to result in a shake-up plus just the general i feel reconsideration of the idea of canon we've had in the last 10 years right so expected some changes if you had asked me do you think jean dillman was going to get into the top 10 probably would have said yeah it's got a decent shot number one number one surprised me but Yes, as listeners know who heard us talk about that in a marathon a couple of years ago and have heard our bonus show where we picked our own top 10s, we both love this. I loved the shakeup in general to be honest. I think it's exciting, I think looking back now, it's insane. What did you say, Citizen Kane? And this is coming from someone who still has Kane mm-hmm. in his top 10 yeah, 50 of all years, time, number 1. That's insane. That is, you know, I know there's been some pushback by things have gotten shaken. They've been, you know, shaken too much. Uh To me, it's more insane that the same movie held that spot for as long as it did. I mean, really, we should have, I feel, a different number one almost every 10 years just to show, you know, that we change, cultures change. And so pretty cool that Jean Dielman is sitting there at number one.
0: I agree. I was ecstatic to see it that high, as I mentioned, and I'll acknowledge that for all those people out there, we'll get to the ones who are really upset about all of this, Josh. But let's just say the ones who are surprised about John Dielman or who maybe aren't even aware of it. They consider themselves cinema fans, and yet this has been completely off their radar. I do understand that. We're not trying to hide anything here. We both knew of its reputation, but... We didn't watch it until just two years ago. Yeah, 2000, 20, 2020. It was part of an overlooked auteurs marathon. That's what we called it because we were acknowledging that we needed to stop overlooking some auteurs like Chantal Ackerman. So the journey we went on back in 2020 was just a little bit ahead of the journey that. Hopefully, a lot more people are going to embark on now, right? Well, how about Ackerman's
1: News from Home, which was also part of that marathon? I know. Which I absolutely adore, making the list at number 52. I mean, that one. Now, that one really surprised me to see that because, yes, John Dielman had a reputation, even though it took us both way too long to see it. We were, you were aware of it and you knew how revered it was in some circles. For me, I did not have that perception of news from home. So that felt like a real shakeup to, to see it get there at 52 and an, a deserving recognition of Ackerman's talent and influence.
0: Yeah, I think it is a new entry, not only in the top 100, but I don't think it was even in the top 250 prior to this. So you're right. News from home with a significant jump. I do want to acknowledge here because whenever I think about Jean Dielman, I didn't say this during our review, but I should give a shout out to a listener and it would be better if I could personalize the shout out, but I wasn't able to devote some time to scouring through the film spotting Gmail back in, I think 2008 or so I did a meetup and went to a movie and got some drinks with some film spotting listeners in Montreal. And there was a listener then. I want to say his name was Mike. If you're still listening, please write in so I can give you proper credit. This listener somehow Jean Dielman came up and I want to say I've been doing film spotting at this point for three years. Possible I'd heard it uttered somewhere prior, but I feel like it might have been the first time I'd ever even heard of the film and he couldn't stop talking about how great it was and how much of a masterpiece it was. And for then 14 years, (laughs) I had that ringing in my head and yet I didn't sit down and watch it until 2020. So I did want to acknowledge that. And hopefully that listener is out there still partaking in the show. Josh and can write in deserves credit for sure. Yeah, for sure. Now, another listener who deserves credit is Joel Rackle. He Apparently loves spreadsheets, loves crunching numbers, and sent a breakdown for us to look at and talk about. I'm not going to get into every single pick, obviously, but I wanted to highlight a few. And in terms, Josh, of what you said about reconceptualizing the entire idea of canon, Joel said it really well here. He says it's notable that only five of the 24 new entries were directed by white men likely seeing the result of more female critics participating, more non-white critics participating, and the larger critical consciousness shift toward more diverse representation in these types of lists. Meanwhile, all the movies that fell out of the top 100 were directed by white men. More room in the canon for diversity. So some of these new entries in the top 100, we've mentioned News From Home, jumping up to number 52, not even in the top 250, a great Agnes Varda film, Cleo From Five to Seven, Going from 202 to 14. Some other films from that overlooked O'Tour's marathon, not just John Dealman and News from Home, but Wanda going from number 202 to 48, Daisies going from 202 to 28, and Meshes of the Afternoon. How much smarter do we feel as critics being able to actually talk intelligently about Maya Darren? having done that marathon, seeing her name and seeing that film Meshes of the Afternoon up there at number 16 up from 102. Yeah, and it's not only that, it's, there is no skepticism if you've seen these movies. That's right. And we have
1: now. So they show up on the list and if they had shown up maybe five years earlier before we'd actually engaged with them, maybe I would have been like, what? Come on. Like, people don't really talk about that movie that much, but we've seen them And so we know it's legit. Like these are some legit changes that have
0: taken place. One more from a previous marathon, Agnes Varda, Cleo from five to seven. We both had seen, so we didn't talk about it as part of that lineup, but the Gleaners and I new entry jumps on the list all the way up at number 67. And I love that film. To your point, if you've seen it, you know, and you understand why it's that high. Now, that doesn't mean it's still not hard to see some of these titles that are fallers from the top 100, as Joel puts it, and feel that it's a little bittersweet. I mean, The Godfather Part 2 on Michael's Top 10, not The Godfather, but The Godfather Part 2, was ranked number 31. It's just out of the top 100 completely. Raging Bull was 55, it's gone. Wild Strawberries was 63. It's gone. Rio Bravo, 68. Nope. Chinatown, 78. Gone. Maybe not as big of a surprise, but A Gear of the Wrath of God, a film from Werner Herzog, I consider a masterpiece, was in the top 100. It was number 91. It's not there anymore. There are many others we could name. Yeah, that shows you that this was a serious shakeup because
1: anytime you move something new into a list like that, Another title is
0: going to have to go, and some big ones absolutely went. What frustrated me about the discourse, as we say, and some of the more vitriolic, anti-woke responses, including, yes, from a wonderful filmmaker like Paul Schrader. First, Josh, why is anyone actually that sacred about the notion of a film canon? I mean (sighs) – I
1: think because it has been such a canon. Again, if mm-hmm. this sort of reconsideration was happening every 10 years, as I argue it should be, and it hasn't been Kane at the top for 40, 50 years, whatever it was, then this isn't that big a deal. It's more no. in proportion for how we should be engaging art. But we have just not been engaging art in this way for half a century film, at least, at this level, right. at, in the in the manner of this poll. So it does feel... And this is not to legitimize, you know, those who are actually angry about this, but it feels momentous. Mm-hmm. Um, now, yes. you asked the second question, okay, why? And maybe that's for the best.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't understand, though, why people are so precious about the idea of the canon. Anyway, the point of these lists, as I see it, is to provoke conversation. It's to get more eyes on and dialogue around movies and movie makers that I won't say maybe have been overlooked, have been overlooked throughout cinema history. Nobody's going to stop talking about Raging Bull or, or the Rio Godfather Bravo, Part II or the Godfather <laughs> I mean, Part come two, on or Chinatown because they're no longer on the Sight and Sound Top 100. And yeah, you said it well, there should be shifts over time. Maybe those shifts are more pronounced in some decades in appropriate relation to Larger cultural changes, but Joel nailed it. The list reflects a larger critical consciousness shift toward more representation. Okay, great. More room in the canon for diversity. Great. The criticism of that approach that I saw and many others saw and commented on online, this is the second frustration. If you take it at face value, just for the sake of this discussion, Josh, you set aside any underlying racism or desire to maintain the white male status quo. I actually saw people use phrases in complete seriousness and earnestness like, well, it's terrible and horrible and flawed that this new list emerged, that there was this momentous shift because it's no longer about quality or merit as if some kind of compromise was made. And beyond the fact that we've already touched on how really no, no compromises were made. Not if you watch the movies. These are really good films (laughs) if you watch them. But I hate to break it to these people. There's no no such thing as quality or merit when you're talking about art. Not really, certainly not objective quality or merit. That affirmative action complaint has no validity. It's not a scenario like, and I'm not weighing in on affirmative action here, let me be clear, but reasonable people might be able to agree on a situation where one candidate definitely has demonstrably more skills and experience than someone else and doesn't get the job. But these are movies. (laughs) Their their greatness lies in the response of the viewer and whatever criteria that viewer lands on. Of course, I hope anyone who submitted a ballot devoted really serious thought to the movies they value and why and wasn't just trying to shake things up, wasn't just being a provocateur. But this idea that only a few people out there have figured it out and somehow get to establish the parameters of quality cinema is just inane. Yeah.
1: You you're speaking, you know, you're speaking a lot of common sense to me. Can I offer a complaint that goes the other direction? And it's not sure. even a complaint, but it's just, and this didn't occur to me, honestly, until some of this discourse began. And I sat down and, and looked at, oh, so let's look at this massive list and see how well-represented things are, I did notice that there is still a hole when it comes to Mexican cinema or the films from Central and South America. And I think there are there are worthy candidates to consider. We also, Adam, did a new Argentine cinema marathon. And I think, you know, you could talk about something like Lucretia Martel's The Headless Woman mm-hmm. from 2008. Now, a relatively recent film so you know there's there's maybe that factor to consider but how about La Cienega, too. La Cienega, yeah, probably. Martel. Maybe almost her, you know, know her acclaimed film. I was thinking of The Four Hour Extraordinary Stories. Right. Uh, 2008 as well from Mariano Linas. And that especially seems like the sort of bold stroke that these sight and sound voters might go for. So, again, th- this is just, it's a quibble. But within this larger conversation about opening the canon and really yeah. understanding that cinema is a global art form. And it makes absolute sense that the entire globe should be represented in a list like that. Um, I'm sure we'll see, you know, 10 years from now, my guess is we will see a stronger showing
0: from titles from that region. Everything you're describing is an ideal state. I don't know if you saw it, but Carlos Aguiar, who's now a friend of the show, tweeted... Not a single film from Latin America on the sight and sound list. Disheartening how little interest there is in general in cinema from the region. Folks will watch every European title on the Criterion Collection but can't name a single film from the golden age of Mexican cinema. I completely understand his sentiment. I'm glad he called it out. I'm glad you called it out. He should be disheartened. And you're right that over time, I think these things will continue to sort themselves out. But the whole thing also gets back to the folly of the process itself. I feel like sometimes people who don't pay really close attention to this and they just see, and this isn't what Carlos is doing, but outliers who are just seeing sight and sound or greatest films of all time trending on Twitter or they see it pop up in their Facebook feed or whatever and then decide that they're going to weigh in, they may not totally understand that you only get 10 picks. (laughs) Everybody only gets 10 votes. We talked about this when we did our bonus show where we shared along with Sam and Michael Phillips, our new or updated top 10 greatest films of all time. It's not as if sight and sound named the top 100 or the top 250, and they had that many slots to work with. And if they did that and disregarded all of Latin American cinema, well, that would obviously be a tremendous slight, but 10 slots, you are going to overlook something. You want to try to have everybody wants to try to have some representation in genres, decades, nationalities, women, people of color, no matter which one of those or multiple topics there that you focus on or decide to try to hit, you're going to overlook something. So I suppose the question for me would be not that everybody who votes is going to vote straight ticket by their own nationality or whatever but did they get enough representation of voters from that region to give those films a real chance i'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt without scrutinizing the list that they did and i'm sure some of those people did vote for these films but that many critics 10 slots each everybody no matter how committed you are to any cause you're gonna leave something out well and for me when
1: something like this comes up you know to carlos's Valid point. It just proves there's always something more to explore Mm -hmm. for everyone. And that's the bottom line with uh, an exercise like this done every 10 years is it just shows you the richness and the depth. And even people obsessed with cinema are never going
0: to get to the bottom of it. And that's probably a good thing. A final thought here from our friend Scott Tobias. I thought he made a really astute point in the reveal The substack he puts out with Keith Phipps, although we're very much behind this shift in the canon, as we expressed, and he is, too. I like how he reminded us to still think about some of these old films as vital. And not old and stodgy. He says, but please never use the word stodgy to describe the films that have anchored this list for decades. As I wrote in the essay, this is an essay he wrote back in 2012, he references in the piece. The rules of the game opened to such public outrage that it faced a drastic re edit and a government ban. Tokyo Story and The Passion of Joan of Arc both tossed out the conventions of the 180 degree plane that establishes the way we are typically grounded in space. Time should not lead us to crude revisions and what we understand as radical advances in the form, just because these older films have carved a path for others to follow more smoothly and the one heartening thing about having john dealman at the top and meshes of the afternoon that highly ranked is that it tells us voters are not shrinking from difficult challenges consider 2022 the year the sight and sound poll blew up we'll have to wait another 10 years to see how the pieces are put back together so we'd recommend
1: Scott's piece again. That is in the reveal newsletter that he puts out. Also, if you haven't had enough sight and sound talk, and I really haven't, I've been enjoying digging into all this sort of stuff, even though we are a week or so away from the list release. Here are a couple other places you can go. Right here, FilmSpotting. We've actually reviewed 41 of the top 100 films on the current sight and sound list. So yeah, could be better probably should be more but I don't think that's too bad and Adam you put together a great page on our website filmspotting.net a sight and sound companion page and that's where you can find all 41 of those reviews if you want to listen in on what we thought or I think even before my time some of these are what um, you guys were talking about when it comes to some of these great films there is also an incredible New York Times interactive article looking at the list it's history What films came in when, how recently released they were to their initial voting in. Just fascinating in terms of looking at what has happened over the years. It changed my understanding, actually, of how, you know, I said how this has been somewhat of a certain list with Kane at the top, but there was been more movement than I would have guessed when you look at it historically. So that's in the New York Times. And then one more thing is from my friend Elijah Davidson, who is a longtime listener of the show. He's also my editor on the book I'm working on, Christian Appreciation of Horror. Elijah has a project called Come and See. And this is where he takes a theological perspective on the greatest films of all time. Elijah's got good taste and he does cover 85 of the movies on Sight and Sound's 2022 list. So Come and See is available in book form. You can also sign up to get it in the form of free devotional emails. He sends those out. It covers one movie every Sunday morning. So check that out if it sounds intriguing to you from Elijah Davidson. Again, it's guide.com. So yeah, I hope this doesn't disappear, Adam, this uh, conversation about these movies as we get to the year end and do our best favorites of this particular year because this has been this has been quite a bit of
0: fun and illuminating for me illuminating fun nerve-wracking but as we mentioned we did go through the exercise of making our own top 10 of all-time picks and we asked the film spotting family to submit their picks as well over 300 family members answered the call that resulted in the film spotting family top 100 some people have said they like the list better than the sight and sound list, and that's probably because it has a few more of those really recognizable and maybe more personal and more recent titles on the list. I'm not saying it's a better list, but it is a really good one. It holds up.
1: Let's say that. Yes. I did, I think it was on Twitter, I posted a screenshot of the family list next to the sight and sound top 10 this is and the family top 10 and yeah a lot of people did respond (laughs) that they liked the family's list but uh, i'll say either way i think it holds up and i think i share i forget what it was i have one more in common with the family
0: list than i do with sight
1: and sound so i guess i would have
0: to agree you can find the family top 100 you can find that sight and sound companion with all of our discussions of those 41 titles and you can find our personal top 10 list all at filmspotting.net. There are links right at the top of our main page. Again, filmspotting.net. And if you are a filmspotting family member and you subscribe to get our bonus show, you get to hear us go through that nerve-wracking process of trying to decide which films belong in our top 10, what our criteria is. Great stuff from Sam and Michael Phillips, as always. Again, filmspotting.net for those links and filmspottingfamily.com if you're interested in hearing that show and becoming a member.
1: I want to tell you a story. It's a story you may think you know, but (laughs) you don't.
0: Over there! What is that? Papa! (gasps) It's Spigs! He's just a puppet! No, I'm not! I'm a real boy! (laughs) Ah! That's from Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, the director's stop-motion adaptation of the children's classic. Pinocchio is currently playing in limited release. It's also available to stream exclusively on Netflix. Del Toro is credited as co-director, along with Mark Gustafson, an experienced animator. He co-wrote the film with Patrick McHale. We just finished talking about the new sight and sound poll when we made our own list of the top 10 greatest films of all time, you had Disney's Pinocchio on that list. In fact, it was one of the holdovers from your 2012 list. Stuck around. I do have a few thoughts on Pinocchio that I'm going to be happy to share here in a moment. But not only did I just finish watching it before we started to record, you really are the Pinocchio expert and the one I'm certainly most eager to hear from on the topic of this film. You've got the bona fides of putting that Disney classic on your top 10. You are a devotee of Spielberg's AI, which is itself a Pinocchio adaptation. And you did experience the other Disney adaptation of Pinocchio earlier this year. This was a live action version from Robert Zemeckis with Tom Hanks as Geppetto, right?
1: Yeah, I like how you say experienced it. I mean, I, I actually yeah. liked it, but it has been trashed. Oh, did you? It has been trashed. Oh. Yeah. it's fl- It's got flaws. Uh, make no mistake. It has flaws, but it's interesting.
0: Okay. Yeah, go okay. ahead. For some reason, I thought you might be among the dissenters. Nevertheless, we've established your credibility on the topic. <laughs> and with all of this said, you appreciating this Pinocchio, I think it carries some weight. So tell us, what did you think of it?
1: Wow, I did not come prepared to psychoanalyze myself in my Pinocchio obsession. (laughs) I'm going to have to give that... (laughs) You just want to be a real boy, don't you, (laughs) Josh? Apparently. I'm going to have to give that uh, some more thought. What did I... Yes, of course I'm going to love this movie. With all that being said, as you suggested, add stop motion, add del Toro. It's very distinct... You know, the 1940 movie, one of the things I do love about it is how dark it is, especially for something aimed at children. It doesn't hold back from being dark. That is true here, but in a particular del Toro way. This thing is obsessed with death. Um, It's very much about the supernatural. It's just a strangely beautiful creep show in a way that only he could do, even though he is working, as you said here, with a co-director in Mark Gustafson, working in a different medium with stop motion. It still comes across in the themes and the concerns, some of the narrative devices, very much as a del Toro film. And that's that's what I loved about it. I'm going to be talking more about this spoiler, Adam, when it comes to our top 10 shows. So I actually want to hear more from you. And this will also speak more to my obsession with Pinocchio, I think, but uh, I have a question for you. And I think my mind is in this place because I just wrote a deep dive for the day job on a theology of Pinocchio. And I basically compared the endings of the 1940 version to Zemeckis's and then Del Toro's. So you can read that if you want to thinkchristian.net. But thinking about Pinocchio in these terms, it struck me that Del Toro's, I'm guessing, had to deeply resonate with you. Going back to our best films of all time bonus show that we did for film spotting family members, the one came out just before the sight and sound list, you prefaced your list. You talked, you gave us a very thoughtful, what I would call a humanist testimony Yes, and how you appreciate movies that affirm that perspective. This is a film, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. I mean, I could choose many lines. One of the lines that stuck with me, what happens happens, and then we are gone. And it delivers that line in a lovely way. The entire film, I think, holds that worldview in an incredibly lovely way. So I was thinking more about this, and especially after we recorded that show, wanting to hear Mm. what you thought of this Pinocchio and if it specifically resonated with you along these lines.
0: I'm a big fan of it as well. Leave it to Del Toro to transform a kid's fairy tale into a funny, sad, sad, And resourceful rumination on obedience, the messiness of immortality and the world's true monsters, fascists and others who exploit the innocent. It's all there. And I love that you were thinking of me, maybe not while you were watching it, but while you were considering it, I was thinking of you while I was watching it and jotting down some of my notes, because especially that point about obedience and you've got these layers here in terms of. The Pinocchio character and his obedience to multiple fathers, the movie puts in front of us. Father Papa, Geppetto. Father Dictator, Il Duce. I mean, Mussolini makes an appearance here. (laughs) I'm not (laughs) just throwing out the word fascist. And God as well. And this is a film that really wants to wrestle with those topics and- There's all sorts of other religious imagery or metaphors here as well. At some point, Pinocchio goes off to the carnival and he gets seduced into it, but he's a very naive little boy. And what's being sold to him sounds very good. It sounds enticing. It sounds a whole lot better than having to go to school and study. This figure comes across, although maybe not in the way he looks, like the snake in the garden trying to tempt anyone. He nevertheless is someone who is selling a dream and he is tempting the young Pinocchio. Of course, there's all sorts of cross imagery and Jesus imagery here and sacrifices being made by some characters, including the almost entirely good Carlo who precedes Pinocchio, Geppetto's son. He seems to be the figure who like Jesus died for Pinocchio to live and for him to try to figure out what being good actually means and whether or not he can be redeemed. It's all in this film, which gives it this adult resonance. But I also feel like it doesn't cross over into a terrain. That's maybe too dark or dreadful (laughs) to make a child not enjoy it as well. I think that's part of the trick of the movie. And I want to ask you then I'm sure You'll have one or two comments on that, but I wanted to throw it back to you as the Pinocchio expert. I'm watching this as someone who hasn't read or seen Pinocchio since I was a young boy. And I know that there are elements from that story that directly transfer, and it's not as if del Toro's making this all up, but I have to imagine so much of what we see in this film is not in the original story and probably not in the original Disney version. Am I right about that? I mean, yeah, I I won't bore everyone with going
1: checklist, you know, down the checklist. But I did recently read the story or the collection of stories uh, that Colodi Carlo Collodi wrote originally. And there are distinctions from there to each of the versions. That's part of Part of what I do write about, which is fascinating because there are, you know, theological implications, as you're hinting at, as well as story and narrative choices that are made with each of those changes. And I think what's crucial here is the way Del Toro has honored the essence of the ideas this story wants to explore, but managed to do it in a way that is thoroughly his own. And that includes all of these religious illusions. This isn't something that he's, you know, necessarily pulling just from the original or other places. You see these in so many of his films are very conflicted. About the church in particular. And so, this is something that makes perfect sense to also be in this Del Toro film. And I think it holds all these, all those things you talked about, which I think are there and absolutely intrigued me, it holds those in a way that doesn't feel like it's burdening the movie with them. It's also very funny. Uh, It, um, you know, it works, as you said, as a tale for kids as well. There are some great focal performances here. And then, haven't even touched on the artistry of the stop motion, the imagery. So, all of that is there as well here's the topper for something we've been talking about here and there uh, over the year the course of this year adam this is a movie that has tilda swinton and cate blanchett we've joked about how how about that do we ever do we ever get their movies mixed up you get two vocal performances from them in this which is just only one i recognize though oh i would i would love to see video of cate blanchett giving her vocal performance because she plays this kind of devilish monkey and mm-hmm. you you have no idea it could ever be her. Tilda Swinton None. as the wood sprite who stands in for the Blue Fairy in this version probably could have guessed after one line reading that's Tilda Swinton. Yeah, for Swinton, sure. Right? And another
0: dual performance, though. Right? That's true. Yeah, in a way. In a way, like yeah. Eternal Daughter. Yeah. Yep. The wooden boy with the borrowed soul. While you may have eternal life, your loved ones, they do not You never know how long you have with someone until they're gone.
1: So, yeah, this is a great movie. I'm glad you liked it. Glad it pushed those buttons. I was hoping it would for you as well. And we'll talk about it uh, a little bit more as we get to our best of the year show, I'm sure.
0: Okay, yeah. I have some thoughts on the visual details that also really stood out to me. But as you said, it's going to come up again, and I will save it for our top 10 show. Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. He is currently streaming exclusively on Netflix. Look around you. This whole place is for people who want to escape. People who don't belong anywhere else. How do you feel? I do feel a bit. calm, I suppose. The world is changing.
1: That's the trailer for Sam Mendy's Empire of Light, which opens in wide release this weekend. Set in the early 80s, in and around a movie theater on the coast of England, Mendy's film is a love story that's also, yep, a love letter to the power of the movies. In particular here, I think the power of movie theaters and the sense of community that they can engender. So, Adam, Oscar bait pedigree all over this thing. You've Mm -hmm. got an Oscar-winning director. You've got an Oscar-winning actor. One of the best, I would say. Olivia Coleman. a sentimental ode to the industry that gives out these awards check there as well. So aside for the Olivia Coleman part, maybe I should have been allergic to this thing going in. And I was a little skeptical, even when it comes to Mendes, uh, I am very hit or miss in his filmography. Why did I fall to the power of movies for this? Why did I like Empire of Light so much, Adam? And Please tell me you're with me because the reception (laughs) my review has been getting
0: since I put it out there is that I'm the only one who likes this movie. You have a chance to get me on your side by the end of this review. I don't know why you liked it so much because you're less jaded and less cynical than the rest of us. I I don't think it's that. (laughs) I look forward to hearing your reasons, but I'm not surprised. I'm not down on Empire of Light. I'm also not very enthusiastic about it, despite... Roger Deakins cinematography, despite Olivia Coleman and Michael Ward, who we've already talked about on this show. And despite the fact that more so than you, I'm generally a real sucker for movies about the movies. I'll sum this all up here in a moment. I'm going to even give you and listeners a chance to maybe choose my own adventure. You get to choose the quote I'm going to put up on Rotten Tomatoes about this film. Which blurb do I go with? There are two options depending on where I ultimately come out on this film. But maybe there was partially a fatigue factor at play mm. with these movies about the movies. Last show, The Fablemans, the documentary on Netflix, Senior, even The Eternal Daughter. All these films to varying degrees are about cinema and making movies or can, about creativity.
1: Can we provide some context that we had both just gotten just, out of a three hour screening of Babylon?
0: It. Okay. I was just going to say it right before we saw this. We watched Babylon. And I knew coming out of that without knowing anything really about Empire of Light, except that it was going to be about movies. I knew for sure we were in for back to back films where we were going to watch a character in close up sitting in a theater, having a visceral emotional response to something playing on the screen. And when Empire opened, as gorgeous as that opening was, I did think, oh, no, Mm. (laughs) the theater opening Coleman's Hillary character setting everything up, flipping on the lights, these slow moving, majestic shots of this grand old theater. I just feared that it was going to try to really, I'll I'll go with the analogy here. I thought it was really going to try to lay the butter, the butter on the popcorn a little too thick, Josh. And let's stop for a second and say just how gorgeous it is. Of course you expect that. It's Mendy's working again here with Roger Deakins, and we see this cinema. It's 1980. The glow, the warm glow of the yellows, the way Deakins shoots it, there's such a warmth to it that even the stale popcorn from the night before looks appetizing and majestic. The bland beige break room we see them in later with a few colored balloons and bulbs strewn about in Deakins' hands through his eye. It looks beautiful. Now, all of the power of movies stuff in that opening is misdirection to some extent. The globalized, the theater's shabbiness. This is 1980. This theater is a relic of a different time. We don't have to be experts on history or British history to ask the question, guess what else is crumbling as it wrestles with its history and doesn't have the grandeur it once had? Of course, the British empire. And here, Thatcher is just taken over. She's going to restore Britain to its former glory, regardless of who gets stepped on to do it. The movie very much wants to talk about that. I really felt, as I said, I couldn't sit through a movie that was swooning over cinema. But whether it is those political concepts and overtones, the racial injustice, the mental illness, this film does have lots of other things on its mind, maybe too many. So here's my dilemma. With Empire of Light, Josh, I'm either giving it two and a half stars, which means it doesn't get the fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, it doesn't get the little heart Mm. on Letterboxd, or I could go three stars for it, and it gets both of those things. So here are my options for... Quotes. Empire of Light is earnestly crafted and intentioned, mostly avoiding oversimplifying the struggles of its characters or offering trite solutions to complicated issues, but there's still a whiff of falseness to it. Or, Empire of Light has a whiff of falseness to it, but it's earnestly crafted and intentioned, mostly avoiding oversimplifying the struggles of its characters or offering trite solutions to complicated issues.
1: Yeah. um, You got to pick a lane. and Which one do I want to emphasize? I would pick a stronger one. I I would lean into, you're going to have to expand on the whiff for me. Which I will. A little bit. Because I totally see how it could be there. And this is especially interesting in contrast with a movie like James Gray's Armageddon Time. For me, when you talk about- The whiff of falseness. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so just thinking about you personally, I think you're going to have to locate, and this is the same struggle I had, why, if I remember our review of that correctly, you weren't quite as troubled by the falseness or possible falseness there, but you might be more troubled by it here. So let's set that aside a minute because I want to go back to your description of the opening because, as you said, we had the same experience, just came out of Babylon. I'm starting to sense we maybe had different experiences with Babylon. Maybe that plays into this, but I was not ready for Empire of Light, and I knew very little about it. I actually thought it was more of a a, a Kenneth Branagh Belfast-type reminiscence of Mendes specific Mm -hmm. youth. And it's not that. This is the story of Hillary, played by Olivia Coleman, this middle-aged um, manager of the movie theater struggling with her mental health. So that was a surprise to me. That helped. But before I even get there, I had a different reaction to those opening images, which are still life snapshots. You could describe them of rooms, objects in this theater. So film canisters, the seats, uh, lights, empty lobby, things like that. And it reassured me a little bit, actually, because I distinguished those from the scene, which we do get, of Hillary staring up at the screen, the light filtering around her as she enjoys a movie. For me, those still-life snapshots were closer, though not quite as good, to what I described I liked about the Fablemans, which was Spielberg's attention to the tactile craft of movie making as much Mm -hmm. as the emotional power i think we get a little bit of that here there's actually a sequence where um the secondary character here played by michael wood stephen gets to go in the projection booth and the projectionist there played by toby jones gives him the talk about how movies work you know the frames per second and what the light does and that's a little heavy-handed, but it is also rooted in the tactile nature of the technology and the practicality. So all that to say is, I think that helped me with Empire of Light, is it balanced its love letterishness with this tactile attention that the Fablemans also had. And then once I saw that this was really more about Olivia Coleman's character, and it was going to be Olivia Coleman's movie, and this will bring us maybe to the falseness... I completely fell for this thing. And it was in her performance. It was in realizing, you know, Mendes is doing a couple of things here. Stephen, the character played by Michael Ward, is a a young, black, aspiring college student. As I said, Hillary is a middle-aged woman. Mendes is writing a script about two people whose lives he has not lived. And already, antenna goes up Mm -hmm. about this. Yeah, And then I began to see Coleman, in particular, as the co-writer— She is so good here, as she always is, and so fearless in her portrayal of this woman and this woman's mental health struggles, um, also the vivacity this woman has but has lost. And then you bring in an incredible performance from Michael Ward as Stephen, who is this young man so alive, just just when Hillary is essentially dying, he comes fully formed and fully alive and watching their connection is something I completely believed in because of the richness of the performances. And also for me, mostly that, but also for me because of the time given to their stories and then to Stephen's story, this movie takes a very interesting turn. I won't spoil why, but Hillary leaves the scene for quite a while in the final third, I would say and we get a chance to do exactly the sort of thing I was hoping we would have gotten in Armageddon time with the black character there. We get one scene in Armageddon time of him with his grandmother. And here we get an extended section of the film where we learn about Stephen's home life, we meet his mother, and we understand what he specifically independent of Hillary is struggling with in this time and place. Now, I know that there are complaints that Stephen is a type, a negative stereotype, a black character who comes to assist the white hero. And I will not deny that there are there are definitely m- moments and elements of that at play here. But for me, the distinction and why I don't feel there was falseness, again, from where I'm coming from, mm-hmm. my own background, who I am, is because of the richness of the performances and the time the movie gives so that this becomes... For me, what matters in this movie was Stephen's story just as much as Hillary's, even though at the end it is still her. she She's the main character for sure. The movie is equally interested in both of them. And that made all the difference for me, I think. I don't know if it's enough to push you over to being a, a little bit more of a fan of the film than you currently are. But that's why it worked for me. That's how I got through this, mm-hmm. this Armageddon time question that was ringing in my head while watching Empire of Light.
0: Stephen, tell me truthfully, did I humiliate myself? What? Tell me, did I? No, it wasn't humiliating. It was just intense. To be honest, I thought you were a bit of a hero. That's very nice of you. Hard to believe. Well, I come out a little bit differently than you on the Armageddon time equation.
1: Yeah, that's why I'm I'm curious.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll get there. In terms of me trying to put a finger on the falseness I felt throughout the film, I'll start with some maybe more trivial things, but it's the crew of the Empire, the co-workers to some extent. Felt to me like oh more, they're great I know but still somehow to me Josh felt a little bit more like the cast of a TV sitcom and not this film a little too archetypal almost the the nerdy guy the wannabe punk girl the mercurial and thoughtful projectionist played by Toby Jones I I know this isn't a fair thing to say I can only tell you how I felt watching it it didn't it didn't feel right. You didn't. Felt, you didn't believe fake. those people would no, be. I mean, you no. used to work in a movie theater, didn't you? <laughs> I, I know, and we we just weren't that eclectic. I guess different times, different places. Something about Coleman too. As much as I appreciate, her <gasps> comments, listen, it's the the way Don't the characters. It. It's it's the way the characters conceived in relation to this topic of movies. Okay, and the magic of cinema only because she gives depth to Hillary that you want every character in a movie to have. I'll say that the movie being there and Peter Sellers character, Chauncey Gardner factors into this film Mm -hmm. because of that movie's message and its appropriateness in terms of release date. It makes sense, but there's also something whether Mendes was trying to make this point or not. There's also something a little childlike about Hillary, like Chauncey as well. That felt off to me, at least in how it relates to that moment and her visceral reaction. The movie almost does want to make us believe, I think, that when she says, I don't watch the movies, those are for the customers. She comes off as someone who legitimately has never been to a movie before. (laughs) Despite being an adult of, you know, 40 some years of age and working in a movie theater. The movie at the end needs us to feel as if she's having a revelatory experience that could be a first-time experience, which I don't buy.
1: Wow. I loved that choice. I just thought it was brilliant to reveal that that's the only way for me it could become a revelation for her if she had been so closed off, so locked in on her routines. This is very much a woman of Uh routine that this was just a job. Absolutely just a job. Not that she was opposed to movies and I i didn't get the impression she'd never seen one before, but she was there to work. She was there to get things done, to make it move smoothly. And for me, I found it more. I agree when she's sitting in the, in the theater and the light comes on, it's the scene we don't need. And probably we're saying that because we've seen so many of them this year. It's not the strongest moment in the movie, but it worked to the degree that it did for me simply because this would be new to her. And more yeah, important, it points, it. it points to another important conversation between the two of them where I believe in their relationship. Uh, it's it's Stephen who suggests to her after she's had a bit of a breakdown that she go sit in the movie, not because being there is so great. No, exactly. He's, he's more a fan of Silver Streak. <laughs> but yeah. it's because it's an escape it, it within community. Yeah. Which, right. is wh- which is what she needs. So for me, yes. when she got in there, he says something about, you're in the dark, but with all these people. Right. And yeah. and that's what I was feeling she felt is because for me, that's what Hill. there's a deep loneliness to Hillary's character that could be met in a number of ways. And her relationship with Stephen meets it in a variety of provocative ways. But one way her loneliness could be met, not completely met, but is to go to the movies. And that, that, resonated yeah. with me,
0: even though it gives us that hokey shot. I agree. Yeah, it's it's a good idea. And we saw it exactly the same way. I didn't question for a second the line when she says that to him. No, that's for the customers. I don't do that. I believe that in the moment. But then for me to fully appreciate what the movie wants us to see as the big emotional catharsis of the film, that's where the falseness started to seep in a little bit. So we see it the same way. We just feel differently about it. And what I saw is a little bit more of a contrivance you went for. The other issue is the question of Steven and and how he's treated and wanting even within this film, because I'm going to acknowledge some of the things you said as accurate, wanting to see him as a little bit more of an individual separate from Hillary and someone that she's watching or someone that she's with and reacting to that we're seeing through her eyes. Who is he away from the theater and away from her? It is very similar. I think to the Armageddon time question, this movie puts a black supporting character, puts so much weight on this black supporting character, but then that character you noted is mainly there to serve the white character's journey, the white character's understanding of herself and the world around her. Now to its credit, you said it's, it's equal, I think. I don't think there's a dramatic imbalance at all. We do get some scenes of him living his life independent from her, but maybe they just came a little bit later in the film than I would have liked them to, at which point I was already starting to feel some of that tension. But back to the James Gray film for a second, I do see it as an apples and oranges thing, even though we have to discuss them similarly. The key difference for me, where I can actually excuse it more in Armageddon time, even though it's more imbalanced, it's actually because it's imbalanced. It should be. That is a film that is so explicitly told through the point of view of not only James Gray, filmmaker, writer, director, but his surrogate, the boy Paul, that I understand why we don't get the world outside of how he sees it. Almost like... A film noir where everything we watch is through the perspective of a detective, and we don't see anything outside of what that detective understands or learns. That's how I see Armageddon time, whereas here with Mendes we have a director who, no matter how personal any of this may or may not be, he's a more omniscient, objective narrator here making some of those choices.
1: Yeah. I think that's that's fair and accurate in discussing the vantage points of both films and how they are distinct. makes makes sense to me. I I, I think Armageddon time tells on itself a little bit along those lines, though, by including that one scene I mentioned with Johnny Davis, uh, played by Jalen Webb, quite well, um, and and Johnny's grandmother. It's it's almost. I, to support your point, Gray mm-hmm. should have cut that scene entirely and kept that vision a little more consistent. And I also think, you know, it's true, running screen time, running time, you know, of, of what we get in Empire of Light, Stephen gets far less. It's, you know, I said it believes in their stories equally, but this is still Hillary's story ultimately in terms of of narrative, but I still point to that extended section and the precipitating incident, something that happens to Steve, and I don't want to spoil, it happens to him independent of his relationship with Hillary. Um, That would have happened even if he'd never met her. And the movie follows the repercussions of that instance. Mm -hmm. Yes, Hillary becomes involved because they have the prior relationship But to me, just as much with concern about what it means for Stephen in his life, with his relationship with his mother, with his dreams for his future, and what it means about being a young black man at this time in in Britain. So I I do, I guess I'm a little more favorable on how that balance works in Empire of Light. Though your distinction, Mm. point taken, I think that distinction is fair.
0: Empire of Light is currently playing in wide release. You'll have to figure out where I stand officially when you look at Rotten Tomatoes for my blurb. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. Next week, we were planning to take a week off as we prepare for our top 10 Films of the Year episodes. Always a big roundtable. Michael Phillips is back with us this year, joining us for the first time. And it makes it easy because she's here in Chicago, one of our favorites here on Film Spotting, Mariah E. Gates will join us to round out that quartet. We will also have our Golden Brick finalists and the results of the current film spotting poll asking you to name the film of the year wherever you happen to be on your movie year journey. You can vote in that poll and leave a comment at FilmSpotting.net. I said it was supposed to be a week off, but we are going to give you some new content because we have both seen Avatar 2, The Way of Water. Embargo lifts on Tuesday about a week from the time we're recording this. And we do hope to have that review up for those who are curious on the 13th, Josh. Not only have we both seen it, we both wore our 3D glasses. I think you kept yours on. I didn't look. Did you? I I had to take them off three or four times, had a bit of a headache. I'm not blaming Cameron for that necessarily. <laughs> it's just the technology.
1: I did not have a headache, but I do always find myself playing the game of like I wonder what this looks like without, right. And then, you know, maybe this is what happened to you. If the movie isn't working, you're like, I'll just keep
0: playing this. Cause otherwise <laughs> we of course want to plug our live show in Brooklyn. We're just a little over a month out. Hopefully all of your holiday plans are being finalized and you're available. If you're in the area or looking to make a trip to New York, Saturday, January 14th, the bell house in Brooklyn, eight o'clock our 2022 rap party. You're going to know what our favorite films of the year are. You're going to know by the end of this episode what our favorite performances of the year are, but what about our opening scenes, our funniest scenes, and overall our scenes of the year. Great lineup of guests joining us for that, Josh. We've got Dana
1: Stevens. We've got Griffin Newman. Allison Wilmore, Matt Singer. I don't know if they'll be reforming FilmSpotting SVU there on stage together. We'll see what happens, but all four of those great guests are going to be joining us for sure. For tickets and other information, go to filmspotting.net slash events. Also want to share a quick note about our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, and their current pairing. They're looking at Luca Guadagnino's Bones and All alongside Terrence Malick's brilliant debut film, Badlands Don't remember a lot of, is that what it is? Because there's no cannibalism in Badlands. Couples on the run, young couples on the run. Okay. It works. Obviously, I've not seen Bones and all yet, but that's what they're up to at the Next Picture Show, where they look at cinemas present via its past. Your hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. It is time for some Massacre Theater, Adam, though we're going to go on a bit of a break. We still want to announce the winners from our last production, I guess we could call it. Sure. This is the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance to win a Film Spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks ago, Adam and I massacred this scene. You
0: thought yourself worthy. You thought yourself... In you dishonor this place with your presence stop you're right
1: i am a half-breed mongol but i did not come here because i thought i was worthy i know i'm not you understand me i do that was jason momoa and You're never going to guess who is voicing the, I forget
0: what it is, whale, something like that? Well, I can guess because I was determined to channel her as wonderfully as I could. That's right. This was your part.
1: It was Dame Julie Andrews in 2018's Aquaman, written by David Leslie Johnson, Mick Goldrick, and Will Beal, directed by James Wan. Now a couple of weeks back, along with that massacre, we had reviews of Ryan Johnson's Glass Onion and Black Panther Wakanda Forever, along with Golden Brick recommendations for Nanny and Bad
0: Axe. So, why that scene from Aquaman? One of Josh's most committed performances ever. If you missed it, you'll hear some of the reaction. Richard Doyle in Winnipeg says that was Aquaman. The obvious connection is that Namor, basically the Marvel equivalent of Aquaman, is in the Black Panther film you're reviewing. Josh's performance was very, very method.
1: <laughs> I am a half bongo. But, but I did not come up because I thought I would work. I know I'm not. That's the only way I know how to do it, Richard. Here's Emily Anderson from St. Paul, Minnesota. OMG, you guys, did you honestly almost kill Josh for
0: Aquaman? Amazing. No notes. Richard Holland here in Oak Park, Illinois, says, look, the last five or six years have made me wonder if I somehow ended up in an alternate dimension where things have all gone terribly wrong. Yet when my favorite film podcast starts waterboarding one of the hosts in the name of Aquaman, it has all gone too far off the rails. Knock it off or I'm staging an intervention.
1: We've been warned, Richard. One more note here from Edwin prevention expert Arnoden. He's in Asheville, North Carolina. This week's near-death, non-CIA-sanctioned massacre theater is Aquaman, still the DCEU's greatest hit during the Snyder years. Appropriate that it was picked the same week Adam mentioned William Goldman's Rain Man assessment <laughs> as, while Josh had all the memorable ticks, Adam did some Herculean heavy lifting, mostly in not breaking character while watching Josh go True. more method than any of his massacre
0: theater scenes thus far. Bravo to you both. I would say that Sam might have just cut out all of my laughing and breaking <laughs> character, except he would, of course, leave that in if it was there <laughs> to undermine me. I didn't know what was going on, so I don't know what you yeah. heard.
1: Sam <laughs> suggested, yes, that, that we put Mescor Theater on hiatus, maybe, till we get into the new year. And mm-hmm. I was very grateful because a little, uh, little pain still in the throat from what went on with that one.
0: Now, you tried to make it so obvious... One of our clearest connections between a movie we're talking about, not the main character, but a villain there, and the method work that you were doing. We thought the water thing would connect with people. Josh, all of that work (laughs) for not. You almost dying on the air, and it's one of the least entered mascara theaters of all time. So maybe you didn't articulate your lines well enough. I see two options. One,
1: people were so horrified, they immediately stopped listening mm-hmm. and just erased it from their brain. Two, Impossible. I'm feeling right now like Brad Pitt's character in Babylon when he sneaks into the back of the theater, expecting everyone to just adore his latest performance. And instead, he starts hearing Snickers. The silence. It's my Snickers. This is hurtful. Could
0: be. <laughs> Why don't you reach into the not brimming at all film spotting hat and pick out a winner? We do still have a winner. It's Zach Anderson. Zach Anderson from Dassel, Dassel, Minnesota. Congratulations, Zach. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we'll set you up with your very own filmspotting t-shirt. Or, Zach, if maybe you don't want the shirt and you want one of the brand new filmspotting tote bags, Mm. we could send that out to you as well. Why do you want to hunt?
1: Because you all think that I can't. I saw a sign in the sky I'm ready.
0: It feels like a hundred years ago, Josh, but there was a time earlier this year when the only thing people wanted to talk about was how good Prey was. The Predator sequel that no one really expected to be very good. And it was. It's set on the Great Plains in the early 18th century among a community of Comanches. And one of the reasons they were talking about it was because of the star of the film, Amber Midthunder, as the Comanche warrior Nehru, who takes on the Predator. This category, Best Actress, is stacked, even more so than Best Supporting Actress, I think. But we're going to put Amber and those actresses on hold just for a second. We'll start with our favorite performances of the year by actor who do you have I have Colin Farrell from The Banshees of
1: Inisherin knocking out Colin Farrell from After Yang which is maybe not fair but I know as I go through my locks here I feel like I had to pick that's perhaps a separate discussion we we'll, we can have if you want to Adam but right now it is just the comedic notes he's also able to hit in Banshees that makes me go with that performance my second lock Paul Mescal from After Sun We both praised him in our review, so let me share this, which I saw from our production assistant, Betty Lavandero, when she reviewed After Sun on Letterboxd. From the moment we meet Paul Mescal, who gives an effing powerhouse performance I cannot wait to see this man's career, I am just overwhelmed with every emotion of sadness, frustration, love, and care that he shows from such a simple script provided. He does not waste a single minute he is on screen. Betty nails it. My other two locks. Austin Butler from Elvis. Adam, we chatted briefly about this. I know you've seen Elvis. I can't wait to hear if Austin Butler is on your list right now. And then this one, I haven't seen a lot of talk about, really wowed me when I first saw the movie, jotted it down so I wouldn't forget, Sterling K. Brown in Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul. Now, Regina Hall got most of the attention as a mega church first lady, and she is great in the movie, but man, Brown. Just this high wire act capturing the charisma, the desperation, and the self delusion of this disgraced pastor who's trying to make a comeback.
0: This Easter is our revival, our renaissance. We winners, baby. You married a winner. And that's all I intend to do. Hey, I'm Rocky up in this fight. <clears throat> Rocky didn't win. How does that know? No, he. He went the distance, you know, the whole 15 rounds against Apollo Creed, but he didn't, he didn't actually win. But he did win in Rocky too. (laughs) Lord, baby, how many times I got to tell you, get past the first movie. That was all set up. Lord, I'm mercy.
1: So those are my locks. My bubble list, Adam, just one name I want to throw out there and see where you're at. A name that I think is probably a lock for most people seemed like a lock as soon as this film debuted. I believe it was at Venice. Darren Aronofsky's the whale, yeah. Brendan Frazier. I'm leaning towards putting him on this list. I just wish I liked the movie more. Is there someone else I should consider adding
0: other than Fraser? I don't think there is. We have complete crossover so far on our list. I've got Colin Farrell from the Banshees of Inno Sharon in my number one slot. I've got Paul Meskel from Aftersun in the second slot. And for number three, it's a battle between, yes, Austin Butler as Elvis and Brendan Fraser from The Whale. I know it's a chalk pick. Everyone's expecting it at this point, which almost certainly means he's going to be overlooked. And that's what the discourse is going to be. He's going to end up not getting a Best Actor nomination, but... I like the film, I think a little bit more than you, you were positive about it though. Yeah. Right. And I enjoyed talking to Aronofsky at a post screening Q and a here at the Chicago film festival. I asked him specifically about Frazier's performance and the vulnerability he brings and the softness even of his voice and how much I appreciate that choice. He's someone you really just lean into and you, you want to hear everything he has to say. I think this might even be a word I saw you use in relation to him. And I think it's, of course, appropriate. He gives that character all the dignity that character should have. And I think that that matters. So for me, Fraser absolutely belongs in the conversation. The fifth slot, I don't have a bunch of bubble picks here for actor. I've only got a couple. And you're right. The key dilemma is does Colin Farrell from In a Sharon knock out Colin Farrell from After Yang? It's either that performance for me, Josh, or it's Park Hy-il from Park Chanuk's decision to leave the detective in that film. And here we go. I had no idea just how much enthusiasm around the world existed for this film and this actor. Oh, I know where you're going. We learned when we both retweeted. Sam's question yes. about the best performances of the year. Some of the most engagement we've ever gotten on the film spotting Twitter feed. So much so I may have had to mute three different <laughs> words cuz I just couldn't look at it anymore. But then I watched the movie, Josh. You've already recommended it on the show. I'm going to give you credit. I'm not going to lie. When we did our top 5 bromances a month or so ago, maybe more, tying that to The Banshees of Sharon, you put RRR on your list. And I thought, okay, you're selling this well, but I feel like, and we both do this from time to time to some extent, I felt like- Killing two birds with one stone? Yeah, you were picking something. You were trying to justify (laughs) the fact that you spent three hours watching it (laughs) and and the homework had to pay off. I didn't totally go with your pick. And then I watched the movie and not only did I kind of love it, But that bromance is so electric. (laughs) That relationship is so fun and exciting. And those performances by Ram Charan and N.T. Ramo Rao Jr. are both so good that I believe it belongs in the conversation. It's a film in terms of that relationship and the scope of it to some extent. It's completely different in so many ways. But it reminds me of a film I love, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp from Powell and Pressburger. And that. Starting out as enemies, becoming dear friends and all the baggage that that carries relationship between Roger Livesey's character and Anton Walbrook. And to top it all off, Ram Charan with the mustache even looks a bit like Anton Walbrook. And that actor's incredible. I, after seeing this film, thought I need to see more films by Ram Charan. He's in my fifth slot at the moment, Josh. Okay. So that's the question for me. I considered both of
1: them and unfairly probably could not put both of them on the list and felt I couldn't pick. It's it's such yeah, a symbiotic performance thing. So so, push me to Ram Charan over N.T. Ramarao, who, for those who are trying to keep track all, of all this, Ram Charan plays the—he's basically the undercover— agent who has seemingly pledged loyalty to the British empire. And then N.T. Rama is playing a uh, beam, the villager posing as a lowly repairman on this mission. So that's who's who tell me why you're leaning towards Ram Charon.
0: Well, I'm going to confess that I'm splitting hairs. And so I'm going with my gut in terms of the performance that wowed me the most. And that in keeping with the tone of the film, I thought was the most fun. They're both great. They both should be considered. But I came away feeling a bit more like, okay, he's a badass. <laughs> I'm just going to put it that way, Josh. He's a badass. That's fair. And there's something magnetic about him and his presence on screen that drew me in. I want to see more of it. Okay. Okay. I'm going to that's I'm, it. I'm not saying it's a deeper, richer performance. No, I get what you're saying. You could you could maybe say that it is. He does have to embody a lot of conflicting emotions. But Rama Rao Jr. does as well in that film. RRR. So a lot of crossover there with actor. Let's move on then to our final category. So many great names, so many great performances. I think I think we might we might have two in common here there's a potential for three almost certainly one pick in common but josh you've surprised me before who are your locks for best actress our one pick in common has to be my ultra
1: lock michelle yo everything everywhere all at once although now actually now that i'm saying that i think i know where you're going otherwise yeah i said there um, were two and yeah yo's one of them okay so i mean really this is this is like a playing these multiple evelyn's it's like one role could serve as her entire career acting real in a way. She's doing so much here and so wonderfully. Going down to my locks, the other one, the one you're thinking of, Kate Blanchett in tar, a career performance we talked about in depth when we reviewed that very, very good movie. Another lock for me, we just talked about Olivia Coleman in Empire of Light. Just, you know, at this point after the favorite, the father, the lost daughter take into account her work on The Crown, just might as well write her in. Every year before you even see what she's doing, I think. Here's the one that I'm I I know is gonna be scoffed at, but I'm always looking for excuses to honor vocal performances. And and you rightly, I think, pointed to Isabella Rossellini and Marcel shell with the shoes on. I probably should have given her more thought because of how good she is and distinct in that film doing the vocal work. But for me, the place to give the honor is Jenny Slate's lead performance in that film because I can't think of a more fitting opportunity. This, From those YouTube shorts where she created this character to what we get here, it's just an indelible individuality from the voice-up that completely carries everything that this film needs. And I love the animation going on here. I love everything else going on in Marcel Le The script is fantastic, but it is Jenny Slate's vocal performance. And especially, I think, if you've seen... Her other work, which I haven't seen a ton of, Parks and Rec. You know, her supporting part is probably where I first encountered her. This is very different than a lot of the other stuff that I have seen. So I think she deserves a spot here. I've got her as a
0: lock. Rolling. Give me some levels. Give give me some levels? Like just like talk? A like, bit? oh, uh Hello, my name is Marsh my Mar- It's not the first time I've done that. My name is Marcel. And I'm partially a shell, as you can see on my body. But I also have shoes and um, a face. So I like that about myself. And I like myself. And I have a lot of other great qualities as well. That's perfect.
1: Here are my bubble options right now. Pantea Panahiha, the mother in Jafar Panahi's Hit the Road, um, I think maybe maybe not fair to say an overlooked film this year. I'm seeing it on a couple of the early top 10 lists to come out, but certainly deserve more attention than it got. And her performance is incredible in it. Tang Wei as the femish, fatalish figure in Park Chanuk's decision to leave. <laughs> She's great. We mentioned Amber Mid-Thunder in Prey. What a revelation. And then Florence Pugh in Don't Worry Darling. The best thing in Don't Worry Darling. And I don't mean that as an insult.
0: No, you don't. I might say it, and it would be an insult. I have those two that we touched on as locks. Overlap there, Blanchett and Michelle Yeoh. Actually, I have Blanchett right now at number one. I've got Michelle Yeoh at number three. And in between them, I've got Jennifer Lawrence for her performance in Causeway. My bubble picks, the two that are just right on the precipice right now, Tilda Swinton. In her dual performance, we talked about last week on the show, Joanna Hogg's The Eternal Daughter. I know you disagree with me about this one, but Ana de Armas and her performance mm. as Marilyn Monroe in Blonde is one of the big reasons why that movie ultimately worked more for me, more than it didn't. The other contenders, you mentioned two of them. Tong Wei decision to leave, really tough to omit, especially how much I love that film. Amber Mid-Thunder for Prey who you noted Zoe Kravitz. I like her a lot. in Steven Soderbergh's Kimmy. How about this one that I just caught up with been meaning all year to see it. Finally, I still have some homework to do because this director and this actress put out two films about this character this year, Mia goth in Ty West's X. I still need to see the prequel to that Pearl. I didn't think you had seen that film. So I went to your site to look and read what you had to say. You weren't too hard on that film. You did appreciate some elements of it, including the visual style, which I think is a real strength of the film. But the thing that you saw in that movie, not to digress, the thing that you saw in the movie as a problem point, I actually saw as a strength. And I do really like Gough's performance. In X, you're talking about. Yeah, because I, I have to see Pearl yet myself. Yeah, in X. So I haven't seen Pearl yet either. Other names I'll just throw out real quick. Not only include Jenny Slate, from Marcel Shell with Shoes On, but Anna Diop from Nanny, Emma Thompson from Good Luck to You, Leo Grand, Frankie Corio in After Son. Yes, we give all the accolades to Paul Mescal, and we should. Actually, a guy giving a performance that is in a lot of ways as mournful as Colin Farrell's in After Yang, but as a newcomer, Frankie Corio certainly holds her own as the daughter in that great film from Charlotte Wells. I also did like Dakota Johnson, quite a bit in Cha-Cha Real Smooth. And I think I like Vicky Creeps' performance most about the film Corsage, which I did recently catch up with. So about 10 names there in the running. My locks are only Blanchett, Lawrence, and Michelle Yeoh. And I've got some work to do in terms of deciding whether or not Swinton and Ana de Armas are really going to stay in the top five.
1: Yeah, you've got some wrestling to do. Corsage... I'll I'll just say I think Creeps is very, very good in it and will come up as we talk about some of the other categories on our bonus show for film spotting family members. I think that movie, though, isn't going to be in my top 10 uh, or I think is, you know, among the very best of the Mm -hmm. year, has a lot to recommend
0: it in terms of some of the filmmaking going on. I agree with that. We've shared now our favorite supporting and lead performances of the year mostly where our ballots are at and probably will be when we finally submit them. Just in terms of what does this all mean? When will I actually see the results? As of right now, when we're taping this, we've still got about four days, five days to watch some more stuff and finalize our choices and submit our ballots on Monday, December 12th. So depending on when you're listening to this, by the time you hear this, the nominees might already be out there, which you can follow by going to our Twitter feed at FilmSpotting, go to the Chicago Critics Twitter feed or ChicagoFilmCritics.org. You'll see those nominees as of Monday, December 12th. You'll see then who we will be voting on in the second round. And then on Wednesday, it's a quick turnaround. If there are some titles that get nominations that we haven't seen, we only have about 24 hours or so to cram in some final films. The winners are announced on December 14th.
1: And as I said, we do have more picks from our CFCA ballots that we'll discuss on this month's bonus show. We're going to talk editing, cinematography, scores, and also the year's breakthrough performances. So if you want to get that bonus show, as well as all of the monthly bonus shows we do, they are just one of the perks of being a member of the Film Spotting family. More information about how to do that is at FilmSpottingFamily.com. That's it, Adam. That's the end for this show. Again, if you would recommend us, give us a review either on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. We would really appreciate it. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, you can find Adam at FilmSpotting and I am at LarsonOnFilm. Over at FilmSpotting.net, you can vote in the current FilmSpotting poll. We're asking, what is the film of 2022? Also on the website, that's where you can get show t-shirts or other merch. Go
0: right to filmspotting.net slash shop. Out on digital this weekend, Emancipation starring Will Smith as an enslaved man who escapes in order to return to his family. That's directed by Antoine Fuqua on Apple TV Plus and also Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, recommended highly by both of us. That's on Netflix and in select cities. Out wide, you can see Empire of Light. I'm still wrestling with my reaction. More mixed than Josh He definitely recommends the new one from Sam Mendes, Darren Aronofsky's The Whale with Brendan Fraser. One of those performances I do think has to be recognized here at the end of the year. It's in theaters as well. Next week, it isn't really a week off. We will be prepping behind the scenes for our top 10 films of 2022 roundtable shows. Those episodes will be with Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune and Mariah Gates. A lot of homework to do. But, Josh, we are also going to find time to release our review of Avatar 2 The Way of Water.
1: Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dussault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar.
0: Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.